In these chapters, we have the imagery of a widow who has lost her husband and has no children to accompany her through life. A foreigner who has no place to call home and no one to accept as he comes before God. And a man who has no capacity to have children and sees his name and his legacy being cut off or no longer existing once he is gone. And between these two sets of images, we have the passage that Jonathan just read for us, that in which God invites people, invites sinners to his eternal hope. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 52 and 53, and we saw Jesus' obedient sacrifice leads to his exaltation. But there are rich blessings not only for Jesus himself, but also for all those who will trust in him. And so as we look at Isaiah 54 to 56, I want to show you that God invites sinners to his eternal hope. We start out here in chapter 54 and see that God gives descendants to his childless and despised widow. This is in chapter 54, verses 1 through 17. First of all, we see God taking her from suffering loneliness to being multiplied. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwelling, spare not. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your pegs, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. And so in this we see that God's people will go from uh, focusing on their barrenness, their lack of, of descendants, to joy God's provision of family, and even the fact that there will need to be more room for all the descendants that God would give as they resettle the land. And think about this in the context of the Israelites, the people of Judah, after they have been sent away into exile, their cities have been burned, the wall of, the, of Jerusalem has been broken down, the temple's been destroyed. We know that this is the case because all of the need in the time of Nehemiah and others to rebuild these things. So their land is desolate. Many of the people have been killed. Many of the ones that have been left have been carried off into captivity. And so God paints this picture of describing his people as a widow who is childless and alone. And in that context, he says, there's going to come a day in which the sons of the widow who is childless will be more than the sons of the married woman. And not in any kind of a, inappropriate way or anything like that, but just, just this picture, this image of hope of, being, of going from nothing and being alone to so many people that you have to have larger tents and rebuild the cities bigger than they were before and all of these sorts of things. This is the hope that God lays out for his people. And as we talked about in previous weeks, the reason that his people are in this state of being alone and desolate and in exile and all these sorts of things is because in Isaiah's day, they're warned over and over and over again, turn back to God. More time elapses and about a hundred years after Isaiah, they've continued to refuse to listen. And because they haven't listened, they haven't turned back from God. There's brief glimpses of hope under kings like Hezekiah, but for the most part, the people just continue this downward spiral into idolatry and all sorts of wickedness. So God carries them away into captivity. And yet even when they look back in that moment of captivity to the words of Isaiah, God wants them to find hope that there will be a time of restoration. To go from suffering loneliness to being multiplied. 
verses 4 through 10, to go from having shame to receiving compassion. It says in verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. So there's coming a day in which God's people will forget their shame and the loss and the captivity that God is putting them through because of their sin. And instead, they will rejoice at what God is doing in that future time. The next verse, verse 5, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And so, if it were just a human making these promises, then God's people would have no real hope or expectation that they would be fulfilled. But God is both the one who put her into exile, and God is the one who's going to restore His people as though He is their husband, um, and as though the people collectively are His wife. He's going to take them again to Himself. He's going to bless them. And so all of these, ima- all of these images of having children and being blessed and all these sorts of things are a picture of God's compassion on His people Israel despite their sin as He restores them from captivity in that future time. It says in verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and, grieve- and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is where it gets interesting because the image is as though she has been divorced and abandoned and rejected. And the sense in which that is true has nothing to do with God having broken any of His promises, but everything to do with the people having abandoned their relationship with God. There's other places in the prophets where God uh, has a prophet come and, and basically say, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a woman who commits adultery all the time, who's basically a prostitute, and this is going to be an image of the unfaithfulness of my people. And that woman then leaves the prophet and goes and lives that same way as she was before, and the prophet goes and takes her back as his wife. And now he's raising children that aren't his and, and caring for a woman who doesn't love him. That's the picture that we see of God's attitude toward his people. God said, I want you to worship me as your God. And the people said, no, we want to worship idols instead. God said, I want you to be faithful to me as your husband. The people said, no, we want to be faithful to all of these pagan gods. And so Israel commits spiritual adultery over and over and over again And so God, in various places, in the words of the prophets, describes what he does in sending them into exile as a kind of a divorce. I'm sending you away. You've broken the marriage relationship. There is a a rift in it. But at the same time, God then takes them back. God restores them. God accepts them. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 8. Calls his people from rejection and grief and loneliness to welcoming them back in compassion. And from God's perspective, this is a brief moment. Now, for the people of Israel, it's 70 years that they are in Babylon, and it is longer that they go through history at various moments, feeling as though God has rejected them. And yet the reality is that God shows compassion where they deserve none, and God shows kindness and mercy where they had continually rejected Him over and over. And so God's sending them away is not, there's nothing of vindictiveness, there's nothing of cruelty, there's nothing of all of that in it. It is God saying, 
I want you to worship me, I want you to be faithful to me, and I will go to whatever lengths are necessary to get you from your idolatry and your sinfulness and your going your own way to coming and following after me so that I am your God and you are my people and we dwell together. So then, we see in verses 9 and 10 where it says, For this is like the days of Noah to me when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And so going back to the time of Noah, what does God promise Noah? I'm never again going to send a flood to flood the earth in the way that it happened in the days of Noah. Does that mean God will never judge or punish the earth again? No, because in the writings of Peter, it says God is going to purge the world with fire in a coming day. God's going to purify the earth. God's going to reshape the earth. So it's not a sign that there will never again be judgment, but God says in this way, there will never again be a flood as the instrument of my judgment. And what's the reminder of that? It's the rainbow in the clouds. When God, when you see a rainbow after a rainstorm and the sun is shining through with all that water and you see the rainbow, that should be a reminder to us that God has made this promise that He will never again flood the earth the way He did in the days of Noah. How then are we to understand verses 9 and 10 in, the, in light of the experiences of the Israelites since Isaiah's day? Because if God is merely speaking of the time in which the people are restored back to the land after being in Babylon, there are a number of people who come and conquer them in successive waves. Uh, the Romans, and then after the Romans, various other peoples, and then even in much more recent history, there is great devastation and loss and sorrow brought into the lives of God's people, Israel. And so, I mean, there's two possibilities. The easy one is just to say, well, this is all future. Someday God's going to do this restoration, and from that point forward, these things will never take place. Or to see it, and this is perhaps more tension with this view, but perhaps uh, more in line with what the text is focusing on, it's focusing on God's faithfulness and the certainty of his promises, and less focused on the exact point in time at which all this takes place. I'm not saying the time doesn't matter. I'm not saying we shouldn't think about it. I'm just saying the emphasis and the focus is on God will keep his promises, God will have compassion on you, and God will restore you. And uh, we're going to see more of that as we get to the end of chapter 54. So even as God promised never to flood the world again, so also God promises not to be angry with his people again, send them into exile the way that he did. The third thing that we see from this passage, in addition to God taking them from suffering loneliness to being multiplied and from shame to receiving compassion, He will take them from being assailed to finding security, from being attacked to finding security. O afflicted ones, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones." God will move her from being afflicted and storm-tossed and without any comfort to the security of having this beautiful fortress, not just strong, but also precious and valuable. I mean, most people don't build castles out of the stones that are described here. And yet, God is saying there will be both beauty and strength in the restoration that he is accomplishing on their behalf. 
And then a little bit later, this idea that God will establish them. Verse 13, all your sons will be taught of the Lord and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness, you will be established. You'll be far from oppression for you will not fear and for terror for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself has created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. And so they will dwell in righteousness and without oppression in verses 13 and 14 and without sending further enemies against her because God is both the one who sends armies and causes them to succeed or fail in verses 15 and 16 and then the reality that their security will be their heritage and vindication from God. Again, there's a degree of tension or a question mark about when this will take place. And for me, there's a lot of parallels with what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1 when Paul is speaking to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, you who are troubled rest with us and wait for the day in which God is going to accomplish all these sorts of things. And you say, well, how in the world can it be any kind of comfort for the people in the church at Thessalonica that Paul says... Be comforted because there's a day some way along off from now when God is going to say, yes, you were right, and yes, you are my people, and yes, I am there for you, and yes, I'm delivering you. How does that help me right now when I'm being oppressed or persecuted or whatever else is going on in my life that all this is going to happen way down the road? And the answer is that it's not primarily about the specifics of the deliverance, but your relationship with the God who does the delivering. Which is to say, the people of Thessalonica could be going through great persecution and see the hope of that day coming and look forward to it, even if they didn't get to experience it. You and I can follow God now and go through difficulty in this life and see the hope of God's coming even if we don't get to experience it. And the reality is, this has been the case for many of God's people th down through history, that God began to reveal things or that God began to make promises that many of them did not experience themselves. So, for example, 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12, uh, the prophets wanted to know when Christ would come. In verse 12, it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Or even in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we have this sort of summary statement. At the end of uh, chapter 11, it says, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. How can it be a comfort for God's people who were hearing Isaiah's words and not listening to them, or some of them who were, but the most of the people weren't? Or how could it be a comfort for God's people who are in captivity in Babylon? Or how could it be a comfort for God's people who were under the oppression of the Romans? Or how could it be a comfort for God's people who were preyed upon by a variety of other nations down through history? God's people Israel, how could it be a comfort to them that there's this future day when things will take place when their present circumstance looks nothing like what's being promised. And it comes down to what I was just saying. If we have confidence 
in God who is making the promise and we are willing to see that we may not be the specific generation that experiences the full blessings of that promise, it helps us to be able to wait for that day when all of God's promises come true and are fulfilled in what Jesus is doing. And so in chapter 54, Judah, like a widow, despised and without children, is going to find God's compassion as he grants security and multiplies descendants. But this ministry wasn't just for Judah, God's chosen people. This invitation, I feel like, goes out more broadly in chapter 55, our scripture reading for this morning. In chapter 55, we see this truth. God offers mercy to anyone who turns from the worthless to the worthy. God offers mercy to anyone who turns from the worthless to the worthy. So what should our response be then? We should reject what cannot satisfy and turn to the God who is faithful. That's what we see in verses 1 through 5. People need food and drink to survive. And God is painting this picture through the words of Isaiah that there are people who have no money, but he says, come buy what you need. You don't have any money, come buy groceries. You don't have any ability to, to get it, but come receive it. And so in this verse, we see that they need God who invites them to come even more than they need food and drink. And in this picture, this analogy says, it's as though you have no money, but you're going out and trying to buy without money things that are not food. It's as though instead of going to the grocery store, you went out in your backyard and you picked up sticks. And you said, hey, I'm going to eat this. Instead of going to the grocery store and buying bread, you go walk along the road and you find some gravel and you say, I'm going to eat that. Instead of drinking water, you go and try to drink sap off of a tree or something that, and I, maybe that's not the best analogy because there's maple syrup and all that, but um, you go find something that's liquid but that is not going to restore your thirst. That's my point. When people pursue their own way and live in idolatry, they are trying to satisfy what can only be satisfied in God with things that can never satisfy. So what does this look like? Well, some of the things that uh, we were talking about even earlier this morning. If I think my life will be full and satisfied if I had another $50,000, then I'm going to direct my life toward the pursuit of money. And if I achieve that goal, and I might not, but if I achieve that goal, I'm going to get there and I'm going to find that I have the same answer as uh, I think it was one of the Rockefellers or someone like that a long time ago. When will you be satisfied? when I have just a little more. Pursuing money does not satisfy. All right, pursuing pleasure. Solomon said, okay, let's pursue pleasure. And if we want to look at an example of someone who pursued pleasure to the extreme, Solomon is a great example of that. Not great as in morally great, but he went to any lengths to try to pursue these things. So some people say, well, I'm going to have a relationship with one man or one woman at a time, or some people foolishly try more than one at a time. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Solomon had rivers of wine. Solomon had acres of food. Solomon had gold and silver and gardens and songs and all of these kinds of things. So you say, okay, I'm going to pursue pleasure. 
what you will find is that the harder you pursue it, the less satisfying it is. Money, pleasure, maybe you say those aren't the things that are a big deal to me, it's, it's people responding to me in a certain way. So you orient your entire life toward being recognized by people and appreciated by people and all those sorts of things. And what you're going to discover is, if you haven't already, someone's going to say something nice and you want them to say something more. Someone's going to appreciate something that you do and you're going to want them to do that more. And then you're going to discover that over and over and over again, it is less than what you had hoped for and it does not satisfy you. Money doesn't satisfy Pleasure doesn't satisfy. Recognition doesn't satisfy. You say, okay, but this is kind of a good thing. I'm going to pursue the making of memories. So I'm going to spend time with my family, people that I love, friends, and we're just going to make memories, and we're going to make photo books about them, and we're going to share them with one another. We're going to reminisce about old times and all those sorts of things. And then you start to forget and they start to forget. And for almost everyone who has ever lived within two generations, everything about you will be forgotten. Doesn't mean it's not worth spending time with people, but it does not satisfy you. And say, okay, well, maybe it's not worth it to serve God, I'm gonna pursue sin. You say, okay, I'm going to just give in to my anger when I'm angry. I'm gonna give in to my greed when I'm greedy. I'm going to give in to my lust when I'm lustful. I'm going to give in to my desire to say whatever I want when I want to say whatever I want. I'm going to be proud. I'm going to be whatever. And it will not satisfy. It has never worked for one person in the history of the world to give yourself over to sin and think that you will be happy. There's any number of things that we can pursue that we think will bring us satisfaction. And verse 2 says, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? God says, I'm the only one that your life was created to be the focus of. This is a hard truth because there's many good things in life that we can put in place of God. Your husband or wife, your kids, your parents, even people that you're trying to serve in ministry, uh, all sorts of blessings that God has given to us, but none of them can take God's place. Sinful things can't replace God, and good things in people can't replace God. Only God can be in the place of God in your life. He says, listen to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Romans says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. If you and I as in this picture, say we're going to go out and eat rocks and sticks and try to drink things that cannot satisfy our thirst, do you know what happens? Eventually you die. If instead we come and find wine and milk and bread, 
from God, the blessings of knowing God and having a relationship with God and being in his presence, what do we discover? We have life. And that is what Isaiah is calling people to. Verses 4 and 5, I think, indicate that this is broader than just, and we see this even in chapter 56, this is broader than just God talking to the people of Israel and Judah. This is God talking to anyone who's willing to come in this way. It says in verse 4, I've made him a witness to the peoples. And this idea of a nation you don't know and a nation that doesn't know you will run to you. There's this picture that God's going to exalt his people and other nations are going to come in connection with that, and God is going to save more than just Israel and Judah. And why do I say this? Well, I mean, even going back to what we saw at the end of chapter 52, where it says, verse 15, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Um, And even earlier in that, where it says that um, it is... uh, Chapter 49, verse 6, It is too small a thing you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So in Isaiah 55, we see an echo of what we already saw in chapter 49 and in chapter 52, which is God's not just doing something among the people of Israel and Judah. God could have just said, you sinned and you went away into exile at my command, and now I'm going to restore you. But God says, I'm not only going to restore you, but I'm going to use you to restore many from all the nations of the earth. So God is going to welcome them in for the sake of his promises to David as he gives glory to his servant Israel. So the first response is, reject what cannot satisfy and turn to God who is faithful. And then the second response is, Rest in his promises because he's an eternal God whose word cannot fail. We see this in verses 6 through 13. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you're wicked, forsake your way, your thoughts. Return to the Lord. He will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. So seek God and turn away from evil to find God's compassion. Notice it says, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. We might think that there is a possibility to do this whenever and wherever we feel like, but there is a degree of urgency in Isaiah's words that if you have a sense that God is near, that he is saying, follow me, don't say, eh, down the road. This is something we need to deal with in the moment. And we deal with it by turning away from our ways, our thoughts, and turning to God himself. What do our ways and our thoughts look like? Well, if I just do this, then God will be happy with me and I can earn my way to him. But as we already saw earlier in the chapter, if we're off there eating gravel and sticks and thinking that it's food, why do we think that anything that we have is of value that God wants it in offer to what he's holding out to us. In our sin, we are foolish, and in our sin, we have nothing to bring God. And so God says, turn away from that and look to what I am providing, 
God will have compassion and he will pardon. We saw that in Isaiah 53 through the work of his righteous servant. We see it all throughout the New Testament on the basis of what Jesus has come and done in living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death in place of sinners. God is able to righteously welcome sinners in. That's all the behind the scenes. It's not focused on that in this verse. It is you turn away from your sin and you turn to God and you will find compassion. Along those lines, when we're witnessing to people, as great as the truths of God's sovereignty and all the stuff that he does behind the scenes in connection with salvation are, that's not primarily what we need to be emphasizing to people. What we need to be emphasizing to people is what we see proclaimed here and what we see in the way that Paul preached his sermons and Jesus preached his, which is turn from yourself and turn to God. God is inviting you to come and you will find mercy. Repent and you will be forgiven. Those are the sorts of messages that we need to hold out to people. Now, is it true that unless the Holy Spirit does some kind of work in their heart and the Word of God is used to convict them, they're never going to turn? Absolutely. But I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're witnessing to people, you don't have to show your work. You have to show all of the ways you get to the answer to the math problem. You just say, here's the answer for your sin. Turn to Jesus. In time, they can learn and marvel and be amazed at all the things that Ephesians and other books of the Bible talk about, about all the things that God has done from the beginning, long before time began, even until the end, long after time ceases to exist in all of eternity. They will have ample opportunity to explore all those things. Tell them to turn to Jesus. Seek God and turn from evil to find compassion. Because God is far above man in his thoughts his, and his actions. My thoughts aren't yours. My ways are not yours. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. We tend to take these verses and, and use them as sort of a statement of God's exalted holiness above all the things of the world. And that's certainly true. But said in this context, it is, I think... Stop trying to think that you know better than God in the way that you come to Him. So we tend to make it a general statement of God's greatness above our thoughts and our ways, but it's a very specific statement of God's greatness above our thoughts and our ways in that God has said, here's the plan I'm laying out for the salvation not only of my people Israel and Judah, but for the people of the whole world. Don't think you've got a better way to improve on it than what I've already laid out. God knows and he is far above man in his actions and his thoughts. And then verses 10 through 13. How can we have confidence that this is the right way? Because God will cause his eternal word to succeed as he restores the earth. The rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they don't leave the ground without watering the earth. So he says, think about the cycle of the rain. It comes down from the sky, it waters the earth, it's drawn back up in evaporation and it com com completes the cycle over and over and over again. As certain as the things that you can observe about how the rain falls and the crops grow and people are fed from it, so certain as well is the word that I'm speaking to you. Just like the rain goes down, does its job, comes back up, God's word is sent forth, does its job, and it is completed in what it is accomplishing. What is that word? In the end of chapter 55, you'll go out with joy and be led forth with peace. 
The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. There will be great rejoicing in the day of restoration that God has promised when He fulfills His word, and it will be fulfilled because He is a faithful and a trustworthy God. And when this happens, at the end of verse 13, it will be a memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. There will be no way to dispute it, and people will remember it forever, and they will praise God because of what He is doing. So we saw first that God gives descendants to His childless and despised widow, His own people. Then that God offers mercy to anyone who turns from the worthless to the worthy. And now we see that even as God would restore Judah and He extends this offer to anyone who would come in the right way, what does this blessing look like specifically for those who could not, in the system under Moses, approach God directly? The foreigner who had no place to bring his sacrifice and the eunuch, the man without possibility of children who could not enter God's temple. And here's the answer. God, third of all, gives acceptance and legacy to all the nations as they turn to Him. We see this in chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. First of all, the conditions. Thus says the Lord, preserve righteousness and do, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. God required justice and righteousness, specifically in this day, keeping the Sabbath and rejecting evil while awaiting the Messiah. And God would make a place not only for his own people, but also for the foreigner and the eunuch. Verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So God sets conditions and makes a place for the foreigner and the eunuch. We see in verses 4 and 5 that God gives a legacy to the man without children so that his name goes on. Verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. What was the expectation that they needed to keep God's Sabbath and do what pleased God and keep His covenant? And what was the promise? A name better than the name of sons and daughters which would last. And here's sort of the way that it is poignantly and painfully and specifically brought full circle. To those of you whose ability to bear children has been cut off, I will give you a legacy that cannot be taken away. We see this in the New Testament. Specifically in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts 8, we see this story of a man who is riding in a chariot. A man who's riding in a chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah, Acts 8.28. A man that God sends another man to tell him about Jesus. He's reading... Isaiah 53, which means there's a decent chance he gets to Isaiah 56 on his way home. And God says to him through Philip, do you believe in him? He preached Jesus to him, verse 35. And the man believes. And how do we know that he believes? 
because he says, here's water, I want to be baptized. You don't get baptized unless there's a reason to get baptized. He believed the message, which is really funny because what does it say? Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To an Ethiopian eunuch on a wilderness road with no hope and without acceptance in the nation of Israel, God sends Philip to preach the gospel so that he trusts Jesus, gets baptized, and goes back. Do you know what I think probably happened? I think he went back and he shared that hope that God had given to him. And I, there's no record of this in Scripture, but there's a lot of precedent that makes me think that this was true. Do you know what he found in that, if that happened? And do you know what he found, even if that didn't happen, but in the way that they, all those who share in that same gospel are part of God's family? He found a legacy that's better than the name of sons and daughters. So there are some of you today that have never had children, and you may feel the anguish that Isaiah is appealing to in this chapter. And it doesn't take away that anguish or that disappointment or whatever else. But there is hope, and there are things that matter more than children to bear your last name. And those are found in the fellowship of the gospel of people who are trusting in God and they find family where they didn't have any expectation of family. But he doesn't stop there. God also accepts the worship of foreigners who have no rightful place among his chosen people. Verse 6, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who holds fast, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. This is the condition. If they join to the Lord to minister to him, to serve him, to be his servants, and they don't profane the Sabbath and they keep the covenant, what's the expectation? Here's the promise. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. We also see this in the example of this man, because he wasn't just a eunuch, but he was also from Ethiopia, not one of the people born the people of Israel, just like the people of Lebanon or Syria or any of the other nations around Israel were not born of the tribes of Israel and thus could not come into certain parts of the temple because of the way that God had set that up. I think a really good picture of the way that God describes this is in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me read that for you. Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments and ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Isaiah 56, or verse 8, says this, The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. And so to the foreigners who could come before God and God would not accept their sacrifice because they weren't of the nation of Israel, they couldn't just bring whatever sacrifice, and even if they brought the sacrifice, they couldn't be the ones to bring it into the temple themselves. God says, become my servants. And they might say, but how can we become their servants? We're not born in the right tribe. We're not of the right family in the priests and Levites to be one of the ones that serves you. Think back to what it says in Romans 12, that we have opportunity to be a living sacrifice and to serve God in a priestly kind of service. We who, as far as I know, most of us not born with any ancestry from the people of Israel, have opportunity to serve God as priests and to offer ourselves as sacrifices. And God says in this passage, I will let you serve me and I will accept your sacrifice and your worship. There's a lot of reference to Sabbath here in this chapter and there's a couple of ways of looking at that. One is that we still need to observe the Sabbath today, in which case we should have been here yesterday. And I'm not trying to make light of it, I'm just pointing this out. There is a long-standing tradition in the Christian church to observe and remember the work of Christ and to gather on Sunday. And there is a reality that it is important to commemorate the rest that God promises in connection with the Sabbath, and it is important to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week and that at the same time, every day of the week is an opportunity to worship God. So there is a theoretical possibility that we could worship God on a Tuesday and all gather together, and that would be honoring to God. I'm not trying to make light of these things or say they aren't important. I'm trying to help us think through when it says to the eunuch and to the foreigner, remember the Sabbath, keep the covenant, all of those sorts of things. Where are we at today relative to what it's described there? We have to recognize that Isaiah is speaking to people for whom that was their context and there that was their situation. He's not, God has not yet revealed all of the things that we see in the New Testament, so he's not speaking of them in that way from the perspective of Christ having already come and what following God looks like. He's speaking of following God in the context of the Old Testament system, which was not doing evil, following the covenant, observing the Sabbath. We are now here on this side of Christ having come and fulfilled the law on every point so that we don't have to because we could not. And you think about what it says in Acts chapter 15 when the, the churches at Jerusalem, when the church at Jerusalem is discussing what does the Christian life look like for Gentiles? It's interesting that they don't say things like observe the Sabbath. And you could say, well, that's an argument from silence. They just expected that they would. But they made it very clear that their goal was not to burden them with more things that God hadn't specifically required of them just because he had required it of the people of Israel. 
The book of Galatians also makes very specific points that Christ became sin in our place, that he fulfilled the law on our behalf, that we cannot go back to keeping the law in an attempt to be freed from our sin because we will not keep the law perfectly and so we will not be freed from our sin. And then people might want to say, well, if I don't have to follow the Sabbath or keep the law, then that means I can do whatever I want. And Paul says also in the book of Galatians, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Serve one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so there is this description that there are certain basic things that God has required of people throughout human history that boil down to love God with all your being, love your neighbors yourself, and the specifics that God required as outward signs have differed at different points in history, and the specifics of what it looks like in the, contract, in the context of a theocratic nation ruled by God or kings and judges that he appointed and all of the laws that we see in Genesis through Deuteronomy, that looks different from expressing love God and love your neighbors yourself living in a nation that is not ruled over specifically by God, although God's sovereign and who's in control and all of that, in a nation in which our laws don't correspond to the laws of the Old Testament, there is still this basic obligation uh, to love God with all our being, to love your neighbors yourself. And there's a lot of specific applications of that throughout the New Testament for us as believers, many of which parallel what we see in the Old Testament, some of which are different. That's a really huge and complex topic, but the reason I bring it up is because when we see this and it says, keep the Sabbath and observe the covenant, all those sorts of things, there's a sense in which that's set in the context of Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel and people approaching God through the nation of Israel because that's the way that it happened in Old Testament times. We are now here. There is a renewal that's taking place in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, male or female, young or old, rich or poor. All of those distinctions that are so important in our world have no bearing on the degree to which we're accepted before God. That doesn't mean they cease to exist. I'm not saying people aren't male and female or people aren't rich or poor, all those sorts of things. I'm saying when you come before God, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you have lots of money or nothing. It doesn't matter what nation you were born in or what your ethnicity is or all those sorts of things. You come before Jesus on the basis of, uh, come before God on the basis of what Jesus did, not any of the things that would give you status or recognition according to the judgment of this world. That's the picture and the imagery that Isaiah is holding out to foreigners who in his day saw no path from getting to being isolated and over there to being accepted as part of God's people. It's fully explained in passages like Ephesians 2. And for us today, we have the opportunity to share in those things because of what God said in Isaiah, because of what Paul explained in Ephesians 2, and because of what God is doing to someday unite all of the people who have ever truly believed in Him in His eternal kingdom forever. That's the hope that God holds out. And so to His people who sinned in idolatry are going to be sent away into exile and are going to feel like a childless widow without hope, God says, I'm going to give you such abundance of descendants that you're going to have to expand your tents, and your cities to accommodate all of them. To those who are trapped in their sin, 
both enslaved and willingly chasing after things that make you miserable, but you keep doing anyway, God says, come receive my mercy. And to those who are not part of the people of Israel, but see no path to having a legacy or a place, God says, foreigner, eunuch, whoever you are, if you come before me in the right way, I will accept and receive you, and I will bless you and give you a place and a home and a legacy. And so God invites sinners to his eternal hope. So the question for each of us is, do I have that eternal hope? Am I like the person in chapter 55 who's trying to go my own way and say, this should be good enough for you, God, or if I go my own way, later on I'll turn to you. Stop messing around, turn to God right now. If you have done that, and you say, but I'm not part of the people of Israel, Chapter 56 points to the fact that you don't have to be part of the nation of Israel to be received by God. And if you are of the nation of Israel, it points to the fact that God is faithful in His promises all throughout history and will restore His people because He's a God who keeps His word. And so all of these collective pictures speak to anyone who could possibly hear this message. And so God invites sinners to His eternal hope. Have you received that eternal hope? If you have, trust in it, hang on to it, and go tell other people about it. Because there's a lot of people who are without hope in this world. They're trapped in their sin. They see no path to God. They're trusting in things they feel as though God has abandoned them. They need this hope too. And the New Testament says, Ephesians 2, you're without hope and without God, apart from God in the world. That's where a lot of people are. How are they going to know? You and I have to tell them. And then as they hear, they can go tell others. And then as we gather, we can rejoice like the church at Ephesus. Here's Jewish people and Gentile people. Here's people from every walk of life and every nation of the earth gathered as God does this work. And the end result of all these things, we receive the blessings of salvation, we share them with the people around us, God receives glory, God's kingdom is built, and we look forward to that future day. So God invites sinners to His eternal hope. Let's pray. Our Father, You know what we need to hear from this passage today. Like it says even in one of the verses, help us to pay attention to what you are doing, to what you want to do in us, to what you can do in those all around us. May we share in your eternal hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.